Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snedden. I'm, I'm reading the title, the the notes title for this episode, and it says N at symbol B, Chicago 5, which made me think this is like a new segment on, on um, Chicago, NBC 5, NBC 5 Chicago. <laughs> we would have, that would be a great big announcement if suddenly like we were part of the um, Chicago 5 News team, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely would, but... I don't think that anybody who's ever listened to this show thinks network news like like legit television. <laughs> Just, you know, what I mean, like we could right. maybe do like a cable access thing. Maybe, maybe um, I don't know. Oh, is that is that men's um, TV station still around? The one that just showed like Rambo on repeat and between like wrestling Spike, like Spike TV. Spike? Maybe. Yeah, we yeah. could do. Um, yeah, yeah, guys on books kind of thing. Guys on books. We should uh, we should just not um, <laughs> record the rest of this episode and work on that. Welcome to Guys on Books. <laughs> this is, um, as you may have gathered already, um, not a book review. Um, as we decided to um, broadcast, to post, to upload um, our fifth installment of North Bar Chicago. By fifth, I mean the fifth one in Chicago and the fifth one that Rob and I um, got to be a part of. So it really is ours. I don't. I don't know. Jay Kingston, who I don't believe listens, might have something to say about that. No, he doesn't listen, so we can just claim it's ours. There you go. Totally <laughs> our noir at the bar. I'm still trying to get over. Like Jay Kingston, is that a new book? And he's like, "Yep." I'm like, why? Do you know, guy. Like, <laughs> you could have just been like, "Guys, do you want to review this book?" And we'd be like, "Fuck yeah, we'll review the book." You put us in all the noir at the bars. Like, how do we say no to that? We're like, wait, you do know that we do a podcast about books. I don't think he listens to us when we're up there talking because we mention it each time. Yeah, yeah. Can someone please tell Jay Kingston that we review books on a podcast? And remind him that he writes books? Yeah, yeah. Remind him of that and maybe yeah. we'll, we'll review another because it's not like we haven't reviewed a Jay Kingston book. Two bo- two of his books. Exactly. So maybe he didn't like our maybe he didn't like our reviews. How could he not? That's what I'm saying. I don't know. We I like, don't know, but somebody yeah. somebody that, that knows they have Jay Kingston's ear needs to tell him some stuff, apparently. <laughs> That's fucked up. We have Jay Kingston's ear. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so Anyway, so like Livius was saying, uh, we are uh, bringing you the fifth installment of the Chicago chapter of Noir at the Bar, the Chicago series of Noir at the Bar. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar, Noir at the Bar is an ongoing reading series um, that takes place in multiple cities. So there is an, uh, a, a long-standing New York version of Noir at the Bar. There's a St. Louis one that's been going on forever. Los Angeles has a really strong um, series of Noir at the Bars. And this one's kind of special because we actually got some some of the St. Louis guys up to uh, do the reading. So it's kind of neat. Absolutely, and we'll get to who those guys are um, shortly. First, we should explain because of the length. Um, we're breaking this up into two episodes, so tonight you'll hear two readers. Um, you'll come back tomorrow, maybe, or whenever, and hear the next two readers. And uh, a little bit in between from us, not a lot, because we introduce the readers, and we do kind of our own spiel um, you know, on stage. So you'll get to hear us, more of us, I guess, once we actually start the, the reading. Yeah, like past us at the at the reading is really looking out for for present us recording the podcast because 
past us already did the bios and we already did the colorful Livius makes a joke that everybody likes and then I try to make a joke and people don't like it as much. As much. That's all done. So all we have to do is basically explain to you what's going on. <laughs> I think that's even done. So uh, want to talk about the, the readers for this episode? Yeah, so first you're going to hear Jay Kingston kind of introduce the whole thing as always. And then we're going to kick it off with not just a reading, but a little bit of a um, some some even some singing from Jed Ayers who reads from Who's Your Daddy from a fuckload of shorts. I'm really excited that we got this one recorded as audio because it was probably my favorite uh, story from that short story collection of Jed's. And um, yeah, this one just kind of like when uh, on the first Chicago Noir at the Bar when we made uh, Kevin Lynn Helmick. Uh, read his his story from Nor at the Bar 2. This is one of those stories that I just had to hear someone read in front of a live audience. And you'll, once you hear it, you'll understand why. The uh, other author that you're going to be hearing this episode is Christian Tabordo, who is a professor in Chicago, right? That's his kind of regular deal. I believe so, yes. You'll find out when we read his bio. And he reads from we believe he. I don't think he really did a, a very thorough job of explaining what he was reading from, but um, he's got a book called Tough Lahoma, and I know he reads from that. But there was also some other. There was like two stories he read. He also sang, and I think he even said a prayer or something like that. So this dude was all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So um, we'll consider at least this first half of this installment Noir at the Bar, um, Chicago, the the first musical Noir at the Bar, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more singing than one would expect yep so uh, we'll get you right into that and we'll be back in a little bit to kind of wrap this episode up so welcome to noir at the bar chicago uh, it's good to see all of you here once more once again we have an incredible lineup of readers for you um, reading the best degenerate noir fiction there is to be found. Um, we have Jedi Ayers, long tall Jedi Ayers, the great, I almost said the late great Jedi Ayers. The soon to be dead Jedi Ayers is here. The posthumous man. Uh, also uh, coming up from St. Louis, we have Scott Phillips. The great Scott Phillips is here. It's going to be a treat. Uh, Christian DeBordo is here. Making his Noir DeBar debut. And Ed Kurtz, who I think is outside smoking a cigarette right now. Smoking cigarettes! Pounding a butt, getting ready, getting, getting in the headspace to do what he's got to do. There he is. Coming. So I'm very excited to have him here. Um, here's, a, here's a weird little fact. Uh... I'm from Arkansas originally. I'm Jay Kingston, by the way, for those who don't know me. I've done this thing. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that tepid applause. Um, so I'm originally from Arkansas. Kurtz, Kurtz is originally from Arkansas. And Ayers hails from Arkansas. has some Arkansas blood in him. So. And we have a hillbilly living here. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a heap of the natural state happening here tonight. Um, but we're not going to get envy with that at our levels. Uh, but anyway, thank you all for showing up. I'm ex super excited to see all of you here. Um, these readers are great, and I think we're going to have a really good time. 
Uh, to kick things off, uh, let me bring up uh, the guys from Booked. Let's talk to Rob and Liv. What exactly is wrong with Arkansas that everybody keeps leaving? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen Deliverance? <laughs> that was Georgia. Whatever, same thing. Right, everybody give it up for Jay Kingston. the hard work to get us here so that we can do this, which is really exciting, and we appreciate him having us as always. Um, this is Rob, and I'm Livius. We host the book podcast. Um, we'll be recording this, so you can listen to it again later if you'd like, so be careful what you say. It's all on record. Fuck up, Ed. A little bit about the podcast. We've been going, uh, we're celebrating actually on April 1st with our fifth anniversary as a podcast, and we're about to drop our 300th episode, which we're very excited about. And actually... I'm really good at pulling applause out of, out of the crowd that you maybe didn't want to give otherwise. Uh, the first reading we actually ever attended that we recorded for our podcast was in St. Louis, hosted by Jed and Scott, and it did feature uh, Ken, uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin Lynn Helmick, who is uh, here somewhere, and I got so lost in the lights. Uh, here too. So this is like a reunion of one of our first readings, which is pretty exciting. Um, your first, um, so here's the problem. We have to get bios for people, right? So we have four readers tonight. Three of them provided a bio, and the next guy really didn't. So um, I don't know what else to say. He's he's tall, and he's here from. Oh, did you have something? Did I found, you, you got a bio. Good. I found Jed's bio. He left it on the thing over here. So Jed Aries is the author of such short stories as Happy Cheese, Cat Monkey, Reptile Swap. It's a good one. Mr. Like Squeaky, one. maybe step on you, doll heads. There's too many doing that. To count, but, uh, he's a great author, and uh, he's coming up. So everybody, Jedi Ayers. I was going to read the uh, squeaker or whatever. Mr. Squeaky? Mr. Squeaky, I was going to read that. I tried to adapt that, that, but it didn't work out. Yeah. It was too bad. It was based on Paul, actually. Okay, so usually I try to decide what I'm going to read after I've heard a couple of the other readers in the <laughs> evening. Um, but I'm going first tonight, so uh, you guys are, you know, tough luck. Um, uh, I'm not going to read this whole story because it's, it's too long. Uh, it's from my out-of-print collection of stories called A Fuckload of Shorts. Um, the story's called Who's Your Daddy? And uh, all you need to know so far is that the, uh, the main character is a uh, not very mature adult, but he's working on it. And he's just hooked his, his, first, uh, his first serious girlfriend who he met at a wet t-shirt contest where she beat up the winner. All right. Now jump forward just one month in time and she's yelling at me that I better not quit and that if I can't keep it up till then, she's finished, then I'm just no use. I'm looking at her skinny, naked body, coiled tight with concentration and a demonic, determined cast to her eyes. A look that normally I would respond to with an eager rigidity, only I'm not. Now I'm just sinking lower and lower into what may become a terminal depression. Time break. Back in time. 
She'd got so far beneath my skin in a quick time, I'd never had a girlfriend before, let, a one, let alone one like Lila. We sat around my apartment a lot, listening to old shit kicker music together, and went to see bands all the time. At the Horton Heat show, I even let her see me cry. She got a sad smile on her face and reached up to smear the tear. When we got back to my place, I took my hand, I called it love. And she hit me right away with a life plan that had occurred to her recently. The thought of having a baby was so weird, it didn't seem real. The thought of having one with Lila was like a dream, and I was half convinced that that was all it was. Every lucid moment, though, I made plans for our future. I started reading books about pregnancy and how precious children were, which confused me some, because all the kids I grew up with were little shits from the get-go, but I was determined to do the fatherhood thing right. I started looking for a better place to live out in the country, a little house to rent with a backyard, maybe even get a dog. There was a supervisor position opening at the Walgreens, and I decided to throw my hat in that ring. Rings were another thing on my mind, and I found myself browsing the coupon section of the Sunday papers for shame company ads. I didn't like the idea of somebody calling my kid a bastard, but when I brought up getting hitched to Lila, the scary way her face twisted, you'd have thought I suggested a three-way with her mom. Uh-uh, no! I don't want to ever get married, Carl. Why's that lie? Cuz is all, Carl. You're gonna have to trust me on this one. But I love you, love. We're gonna have a baby and I wanna do this thing right. She pouted and put her hands on the sides of my face and looked up at my eyes. Carl, honey, I wanna have a baby too and I want you around to helping daddy it. But I don't wanna spoil what we got by getting government involved, that's all. Nothing's changed and it's sweet, but what about a ring then? Pardon? What would you say to wearing a ring? I want to get you a ring and have you wear it. At this, she smiled real big. Carl, I'd be happier than shit to wear your ring. Good enough. Flash forward one week and she's on top, sweaty and convulsing and shouting words at me. Oh, Carl, oh, get in there. All the way, come on, harder. Don't you dare pussy out on me, you son of a bitch. Carl, I swear, if we don't make a baby tonight, you and me are through. That's pressure. <laughs> Baby, guess what? I got us tickets to the Copernicus show at Pops tomorrow night. She looked so excited like the quarterback had just asked her to homecoming. Who's Copernicus? You know, Copernicus. Ooh, woman, I'm the one you don't know you want. I didn't know the song, and her rendition didn't excite me much, but she sure enough looked eager to go. I don't know that song. Sure you do, they opened for Tesla and Mr. Big back about 1990 and my dad took me to see him. She put her hands in the pockets of my trousers and rubbed herself up against my leg. I remember thinking that was the first time I wanted to try sex. Really? Oh yeah, Tracy Collins was so hot. He had he? Yeah, he, Tracy, lead singer. He had gorgeous, long, dark hair, didn't really have to wear makeup to be pretty like everybody was those days. She went to the other room and began digging through a collection of CDs she'd moved into my apartment last week. This wasn't sounding good. You mean he's one of those fairies with the teased out hairdos and the eyeliner used to prance around in music videos? Yeah, but Tracy Collins was so much better than that. Huh. Well, there didn't seem to be any way out of getting around going without really letting Lila down. Besides, I was changing, growing up. She came back into the room with a CD cover held out for my inspection. I took it and looked at the picture. Five skinny guys with their hair teased out what must have been a whole can of spray. 
Dressed in black cowboy boots and tight black jeans with scarves, hoop earrings, and silk blouses open to their navels so that their downy soft chest hair could catch the light. They smirked at me from the front of a solid pink backdrop. I searched each smooth, rouged, mascara-heavy face till I came to the one blowing me a kiss with sparkly pink-colored lips. Lila's finger reached over the top of the CD cover and rested just above the kiss blower. I looked over the top of the picture and her staring back at me expectantly with a finger in her mouth held delicately by her front teeth. She snatched her hand back and put it between her knees. You gotta be shitting me, Lila. A high-pitched squeal was all the answer I got. Flash forward to the next night, and Lila's just about to cry. She's pulling on the useless dick meat in her hands, her frustration matching my embarrassment. We're both exhausted and chafed. There's a heavy smell of blood and shit hanging in the hotel room. I'm beginning to look around and think about leaving, and Lila senses it. No! And she loses it. Frustration and exhaustion is finally too much. She cries. It's the first time I've seen her vulnerable like this. Her face is red, puffy, her legs and ass just chapped and raw. I can't bear it anymore. Okay, one more try, Lila. Just one more. She nods, grateful, but can't stop sobbing while I stretch and flex and try to work out some of the stiffness and ache from the last hour's efforts. I look into Lila's eyes, shining with tears, reach over to smear them away. And I know I've already lost her. On our way across the river to Pops, that same place I caught Motorhead with Nashville Pussy not long ago, she's so excited that I'm convinced it's going to be a great time. One that we'll look back on finally a few years from now. We'll tell the kid about it. Hell, we'll tell the kid about the night he was conceived. Lila said that tonight was the night. She was ovulating, and she got us a hotel room for afterwards. She gave me a key. When the first jangly acoustic strums of Copernicus's set cue the whistles and cheers from the faithful, I look up to see Lila's sex god, Tracy Collins, now middle-aged, overweight, nearly bald, close his eyes in concentration and give that girly voice of his a push. And what comes out is a beautiful and true note that shuts me right the hell up. I don't know if Lila knew his looks and his body had gone, but she didn't show signs of the surprise or disappointment. It was me who was unprepared for him. Number after number, Tracy fucking Collins broke my heart with his voice, aged and cracked by cigarettes and overuse, but finally honest and lived in, like Ty Crenshaw's Rickenbacker. At the end of the set, they do their signature number, and I do recognize it. It was one of those songs that was just everywhere for six months, somewhere between 88 and 92, and I fucking hated it. The lyrics seemed like meaningless saccharine sentiments strung together against the backdrop of acoustic guitars and a fucking chamber orchestra with a blistering guitar solo stuck somewhere right in the middle. But not tonight. Tonight it's something new. The guy singing it isn't some 20-year-old pretty boy. He's got some life under his belt, some hard times and a long slide from the top to pops, plus all the painful learning about yourself that goes with it. And when he hits the it's gonna be alright, alright, woman alright. But it used to be my least favorite part. I can't take it anymore, and I head for the men's room. It's empty. Everybody's outside, mesmerized by the former clown up there, singing the shit out of their expectations. 
I lock myself in a stall, sit down, and begin to cry. Starts off as shudders, little convulsions that double me over, hugging myself and rocking on the toilet. There's a high-pitched, raspy moan leaking out of me that just intensifies until I'm sobbing and convulsing, helpless against the tide of bottled-up emotion, a little fairy in the blouse and ice makeup just uncorked. I stay in that stall a long fucking time. Time to buy a dress. Flash forward one hour and I'm seeing red. I killed the guy. Lila screams. When I emerge from the bathroom, the club is transformed. House lights are up, ACDC is on the system. Some of the members of Copernicus are sitting at the tables along the back wall, applying their signatures to old posters and t-shirts. I don't see Tracy Collins with them. I also can't find Lila. I walk around for a few minutes, scanning the thinned out crowd before abandoning my search of the inside and head to the parking lot. Right away, I spot my own car with a note stuck under the wiper. It's from Lila. She's got something special planned. She says, meet me in an hour. Skip ahead. He's uh, gone out and bought some special treats for Lila. It's gonna surprise her. I keep humming the song all the way to the hotel, even seeing the words that I know under my breath. I smile at the lady behind the desk and hum my way down the hall with my flowers. And champagne. And when I open the door to the room, I'm immediately aware that I am not alone. Slapping, grunting sounds hit me like a hammer and I drop the flowers. Quietly, I close the door and creep around the corners where some fat asshole is fucking Lila from behind. My first thought is to rescue her from the rapist, but her vocal encouragement makes me reevaluate the situation. She's going, oh, 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 yeah, like that, right? My whole world goes psychedelic in an instant. Spots burst bright red behind my eyes and the room goes away till all I can see is my sweet Lila fucking somebody else like I'm watching it in a funhouse mirror. The shape of them moving together bubbles up and contracts, pulsing to a trippy rhythm and I feel like I'm gonna fall down, but I don't. I go through my repertoire of emotions in a heartbeat and finally settle on rage. There's an animal howl that gets all of our attention, and it's only in retrospect I realize it was me making the sound. Lila and Tracy Collins turn their head toward me, but it's too late. I swing the bottle of champagne right at his head. Tracy had abused his body so severely for so long, it was really a miracle he'd lived long enough for me to kill him. But that single blow to the head was all it took, and he collapsed on the bed. Transformed in an instant from Lila's teenage sex god to a dead tub of shit. <laughs> Lila screamed. Not a scaredy scream or even surprised, but angry. Just beyond even what I'd felt when I did it. No, you idiot! Asshole! Fucking asshole! What did you do? Ty Crenshaw died. Tracy Collins died. Ty left behind a fortune and a string of bastards to inherit it. Tracy didn't have any wife or children. Lilith figured he was still worth something. And look at him. He wasn't going to live much longer. When I told her I loved her, she saw that it was true. It was like the aligning of all the right stars. She did want to raise a baby with me. She just didn't want me to sire the brat. And she didn't want me to know that I hadn't. 
she'd have been happy to use me as Mr. Mom for a year or two until Tracy Collins met his inevitable early end and dumped me and proved with the paternity test her child's true father. Figured she could inherit some of that fortune he hopefully wouldn't have completely depleted. But I fucked it up. What did I do, lad? What did you do? What the fuck did you do? Broke my fucking heart is all. He's dead, Carl. Looks that way, lad. Hope you're happy. We looked down at the body when it farted. What the shit? She grabbed him under the arms and tried to tug him over to the bed to a better spot. Don't just stand there, help me! We need to get out of here, lad. Uh-uh. I'm getting pregnant tonight, and now you've got to help me. What are you talking about? If you think I'm going to give you a baby now, you're so wrong. But she wasn't listening to me. Instead, she was taking Tracy's still rigid dick in her hands and beginning to straddle the doughboy. How are you doing, Lila? That's sick. Come on! We can't still make this work. She's going to have to help me. What? She turned to face me, and the fierceness behind her eyes set an ice block squarely in my stomach. He won't last that much longer. You've got to make him come. Her theory, which I had my doubts on, but wasn't about to voice, was that he could be made to ejaculate by milking the prostate. I didn't know it at the time, but it's true. A man can be got brought to orgasm by sticking a finger or two up his ass and rubbing that prostate when homos do it, but they don't always use a finger. And I guess any dude can do it to his own self if he wanted to, but as far as the method's merits on the recently deceased go, I really couldn't say. I guess I still loved her. I'll leave it there. <laughs> That's what passes for romantic comedy in St. Louis, right there, so. Yeah, it's one of those upbeat, love conquers all kind of stories you come to expect from more at the bar. Our next reader um, followed directions and got us a bio. <laughs> Christian Tabordo has published five books, most recently. That's a picture Christian. Sure. That's okay. Everything's so good. Am I right, Christian? Are you up next? Yeah. Yeah. I don't follow instructions like other people do. Christian DeBordo has published five books, most recently a collection of short fiction, The Awful Possibilities, and the novel Tough Lahomar. He lives in Chicago where he teaches in and directs the MFA program at Roosevelt University. Give it up for Christian. I'm not sure I'm in the right place. Uh, <laughs> I was outside talking to a brother at Kurtz. He tells me he's an apostate. Indeed I am. Brother Jed reads a story about... I still swearing in it. I feel like I need to exercise the place, guys. I'm going to sing a song of praise, and then I'm going to read you a prayer. <laughs> My work does nothing for you Cause you hate words that talk about themselves Well you do nothing for my word Cause my word hates everyone 
I want to inspire you. And maybe just set fire to you. There are things that you hold on to. And things that go away. There are things that you hold on to. And things that... Bow your heads, close your eyes, let us pray. Sweet Jesus! <laughs> when we say that there is nothing to see in Oklahoma, and all the good things to see are in Oklahoma, and the rest of them are in Rufflahoma, we don't mean there are no good things to see in Tufflahoma. There is one good thing to see in Tufflahoma. There is a pond deep in the heart of the Tufflahoma Nature Theater, and a great blue whale rests at the edge of the pond. A slide slides out of the blue whale's great head into the pond, and children may slide down the slide. The blue whale's tail is a diving platform off of which children may dive into the pond. The guts of the whale also are hollow and blue. Some say that when the Jesus of the Dakotas fed his blue ox babe to the 5,000, there were 13 baskets of babe flesh left over. And the babe flesh was discarded beside a pond where it ossified or petrified or what have you into a whale. A whale with a slide head and a diving board tail. But that's stupid. The oldsters want you to believe that it's the very whale that spit out Ishmael when President Action Jackson ordered him to go preach to the savages, which is theologically unsound and also why I wish we had not abandoned the practice of sacrificing our oldsters to the great teen spirit. In other words, it's all a myth. The whale is concrete. Concrete, the love mineral. That might be why we get the way we get about the widow Sharon, whose name is Judy. She is more than a woman, but not yet an oldster, with long, horsey hair and a sharp face and a body all muscle and sinew except where the breasts are. Of the breasts, I will say you can see almost all there is to them on days when she wears the older of the two bathing suits, but none of us men have ever seen more. She wears the bathing suits one at a time to guide the lives of our children and the children of the vacationers as they slide down the slides or dive from the tail of the whale. Our children are mostly straw-headed and pinkish. Dennis the Menaces, Peppermint Patties, a howdy duty here and there. The other children? Who can describe them? They are never around long enough for us to absorb their appearances. Most of us, at least. But they, all of them, ours and the others, love the widow Sharon, who they call Miss Judy because her name is Judy. And the widow Sharon loves them too, maybe too much. This is not to impugn the widow's actions or even her intentions. We can't get at the intentions, so why bother? The actions are like this. She hollers at them to slow down when they bolt into the blue whale's gaping mouth. She sticks a child to a bandage when the child has scraped a limb. She keeps the time of their water treading, counting a little faster than a clock would. Once, she even resurrected a girl with her own mouth. And we appreciate this, all of it. But then, there's the other thing. Once a season, maybe twice, a boy will come around, always one of the others, never one of ours, a boy waif with girlish black hair, skin green tinted but probably porcelain in winter if there's winter where he's from, 
a voice like the tone of a pitchfork, and one of those names. We think it's the names that draw her to them, exotic, musical, feminine despite their gender, Julian, Nathaniel, Sydney. When one of them shows up, the pond rings with the widow's intonation of his name. She repeats it like the refrain of her favorite song, or like a lover's sigh. It's spooky to tell the truth. I will tell you what is not true. It's not true that we men, or any, even the smallest selection of us, ever got fed up with this and followed one of these boys back to the campground his family was staying at from a safe distance, making sure that we weren't followed or seen. It's not true that we hid behind a row of bushes waiting, hoping that Anthony or Caleb or Carlton would awaken in the middle of the night and feel the call of nature and would leave his family's camper or tent to stumble his way toward the communal restrooms following the sickly purple light and the sound of the bug lamps before it. It is patently false that anyone snatched him from the path before he ever reached the door to the restroom or that anyone snapped his skinny neck before he could even struggle because it was not him, after all, we were or were not frustrated with. No one ever deposited a little body in the blue whale's belly, knowing the widow Sharon, whose name is Judy, would be the first to see it, and as a warning. None of it ever happened, and no one has ever suggested otherwise. So why am I talking about it? When I am down at the whale, I sit on my hands and watch the widow with the children. If I happen to catch the eye of another man with no good reason to be there, I hold his gaze so that he knows I've seen him, and then I look away. And if the pond should echo with the call of the widow to Samuel or Benji or Lawrence, I wonder if I'm the only one thinking what I'm thinking. That was ugly. So I'm going to read something a little prettier. <laughs> is a nice one about kids. Um, <laughs> I just want to say thank you for having me, guys, because like, I'm, I'm a big admirer of everybody reading tonight, and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. This story is called Bear Country. <clears throat> My son's first word was panda. His first sentence, look at the bear. Panda was recognizable, if a little drawn out. The syllables broken in the wrong place. Panda. Look at the bear sounded more like look a dubba so it took a minute to decode, especially because he said it while pointing at an illustration of a stuffed kangaroo. My first reaction to each was pride. He'd said the word at 10 months, the sentence at 15, neither with any prompting from either my wife or myself. There had been many other words in the month between, some to be expected, daddy, mommy, yes, no, hurt. Others like hedgehog, helicopter, jaguar, leviathan, a little more of a surprise. But, as I closed the book I'd been reading him, the one with the kangaroo, which was actually about various kinds of light, street lamps, lightning bugs, lightning itself, I realized that my son's vocabulary, though impressive, would not help much with anything he was likely to encounter in everyday life, now or in the future. As I lowered his warm sleeping body into the crib, I considered how few of the things we'd been reading about, mostly from books my own father and mother had read to me, I'd ever seen in person. I have never, for example, laid eyes on a giant panda. Having only known them through pictures, I don't have a good idea of a panda's size. Are they larger, on average, than the bigger dogs? Take 
St. Bernard's, you don't see them often either, and never with small rum barrels hanging from their necks, though children's books depict St. Bernard's frequently and always with the barrel. How many animals in a common alphabetical bestiary had I personally encountered? Camels and elephants and orangutans, yes, but only on trips to the zoo. I doubt I know a single person who has swum with a narwhal or petted a yak. All this to say nothing of the sentient train engines, the sentient cabooses that use their brakes on steep mountains to save non-sentient engines. I don't even know if trains have cabooses anymore. I doubt that there ever was, but I know that there never will be another train that, smiling, says chugga, chugga, choo, choo. By the time I climbed into bed beside my already sleeping wife, I was deep into wondering whether the disconnect between what children's books had led me to expect and what life turned out to be might be at the root of the sense of disappointment that nags at me, as it seems to nag at everyone I come across whenever I'm not simply crushed under the weight of an overwhelming sadness. I lay on my back, staring up at the ceiling fan, and remembered that the fan had been my son's first friend. Remembered how he giggled and babbled as the fan spun, blowing its cool air down on him during that first hot summer of his life. Except for his milkings, they were the purest, most joyful interactions I had ever witnessed. It gave me an idea for how I would revolutionize children's stories, childhood in general, and by extension, adult life. At the office this morning, I looked around for subjects that could serve as the basis for this new form of children's education. A stapler that does not smile or speak with you, but does, when pressed firmly, make a very pleasant clacking sound, ejecting a set of fang-like brackets into a stack of paper unless it's too thick. A computer that does, in a sense, speak to, if not with you, though it never says anything you want to hear. A supervisor who speaks with you rather too much, who says everything you want to hear, except that the promotion has come through, that the company is aware that it's been working you too hard, that it has finally realized that you are no rock from which to squeeze every last drop of blood. A coworker with whom you have not spoken since the office Christmas party when, having had a few too many purr, you exchanged some awkward and even painful gropes of whom you have lived in fear since that day, though the gropes were mutual, consensual, and she is probably as afraid of you as etc. As the possibilities for imbuing the quotidian with beauty for my son, for myself, for all people slipped away from me, from us, so did my nagging sense of disappointment, making room for the overwhelming feeling of sadness that bore down on me as insistently as the jaundiced light from the overhead fluorescence. Now that I thought about it, my son's relationship with the fan had not worked out either. When the weather cooled and we stopped it spinning, he had spent hours, then days, screaming at it begging it to breathe on him again. Now he never looks at it. He barely ever even looks up. I placed my forehead on my desk planner and tried to weep, but could not. I had to stop at the store on the way home. There is no feeling better than the one you get walking through your front door and stopping in the vestibule, seeing the outline of your toddler son through the frosted glass of the door to the living room and knowing he is there waiting for you. There is nothing more powerful than the moment you inch open that frosted door and, after hanging up your coat and sliding off your shoes, peek through as your boy's eyes brighten with tears of happiness as his mouth spreads into a goofy gap-toothed smile and he starts to clap his hands to applaud for you for the very fact that you have arrived home at the same time as you always do. There is no warmer sensation than that of lifting his little body and holding him to your chest when he raises his stubby arms to you, fingers outstretched and wriggling. 
There is no greater joy than to feel his hot breath on your cheek, his bird-like pulse between his temple and yours. Or so I used to think. It is so much more powerful to step through the front door and see him through the frosted glass, standing there, waiting. But instead of cracking the door as soon as you've hung up your coat, to unpack the box from the costume store as carefully and quietly as possible, to slide the costume over your department store suit while your son tries to figure, on what's figure out what's going on on the other side of the glass, to pull the massive, surprisingly realistic grizzly bear's head over your own as your son begins to back away, and realizing that the pause of your costume will make it impossible to turn the knob, and that to remove your paw, turn the knob and replace it will ruin the effect, to crash through the frosted glass with a roar you didn't know you were capable of, as your son runs screaming through the house, hitting his pale, smooth head with his tiny, impossibly soft fists, and running into furniture, fixtures, walls, until he finally finds his mother's arms, though the screaming does not stop for a long time after. The boy is finally asleep. The mess is cleaned up and my wife is still angry. <laughs> the costume will go back to the shop tomorrow and the door is going to be expensive to replace. But this is only the beginning. I'm already thinking about an outfit that will involve a Shriner's cap, a shiny black wig, some swim goggles, a welder's apron, and a pair of rubber kitchen gloves, probably pink, so that I will not have to shatter glass. Next time, at least. When I will do it depends on the boy. Does he still believe in Santa Claus? Has he been giggling or groaning in his sleep? When was the last time he waved hello to an inanimate object? I can't and don't want to ensure that he won't know sadness, but he won't know mine. I'll be a goddamn unicorn on the first day of school. At his confirmation, I'll descend from the cathedral's vaulted ceiling, a stigmatic dove crowned with thorns. I'll be a dead girl in a letterman's jacket on prom night. For his wedding reception, I'll buy jarred fetuses on eBay, arrange them semicircle, and with a series of electrical pulses, make them perform a graceless and complicated dance. I love my son with such a deep, dark, ghastly love that when I die, hopefully when he is much older than I am now, for his sake, not mine, I will haunt him like some specimen from the deepest, most gorgeous pit of hell. Thank you. All right, and that was our first half of this Noir at the Bar Chicago reading, uh, including Jedediah Ayers and Christian Tabordo. You know, before we before we go for this episode, um, you know, a lot of times we talk about our like trip down and stuff. So this time, um, for the first time in a while, you and I actually were in the same car. Yeah. Right? I think it's the first time we drove down together in, in ever, maybe. Well, now I Is live in the ever? burbs. It makes sense, yeah. right? Yep, but we also had my my regular co-pilot for Chicago Noir at the Bars, Kevin Lynn Helmick, um, was also with us, which, <laughs> you know, it's not the first time that Kevin has made the drive down more entertaining. There was that whole that whole thing with the homeless guy and the and the uh, pop tarts, <laughs> the pop tarts, yep, the pop tarts. Which I, I don't know if you saw. Did I show you the evidence? I still have pop tarts in my trunk. They're like a year and a half old, but they're there just in case we need them for an emergency. Yeah, yeah. Well, they well. A lot of good they did because when we were leaving, there was a homeless person and you didn't even have the Pop-Tarts at the ready. Was there a homeless person, really? Yeah. You don't remember that, the right? homeless person? No, you even, uh, they came up to the window and you're like, oh, the Pop-Tarts are all the way in the back. You you mentioned it. You're losing oh, your mind, yeah, maybe man. I might, well, it's that old age thing. Yeah. 
remember but, uh, this going. time we, we we drove down in in rush hour traffic it took us a long time to get there and uh, my car is not equipped we mentioned this a couple episodes ago my car is not properly equipped for long rides in that there is no um i don't know not a porta potty but whatever like like the the bathroom on a bus there's no head there's no head so <laughs> Why at would... one point <laughs> let's say about this at one point, we had to stop because one of us, I'm not going to name any names or anything, had to stop and, like, piss in, in a... Is that a forest preserve over there? I don't even know what that is. We got uh, off yeah, somewhere. I think it was a forest preserve, yeah. Yeah, at, like, 5 o'clock during rush hour. So <laughs> we had to have a little bathroom break, which was vastly entertaining, at least <laughs> at least for two of us. <laughs> I don't know how entertaining it was for the third person. But uh, that was good stuff. And then, and I know this is going to sound like stereotyping, and you know how I don't like to do that. I think we might have thwarted a terrorist attack, too. <laughs> at least we disrupted some planning that looked very, very sketchy. Yeah, at the very least, we set back their plans by a good five, five, six minutes. Five to six minutes. So we stopped to get a cup of coffee. Oh, you want to talk about dinner, too? Wasn't dinner amazing? Yeah, we went to your uh, your weird little food shack. One of my favorite places <laughs> in the world to eat. Susie's, Susie's. Yeah. on Montrose and Elston in Chicago. Um, which is a you think of like a, like a hot dog stand type of place, but they do a, a very wide variety of um, you know, like fast food. Um, but to, to give you an idea of this place, if you haven't been there, inside there are exactly three stools to sit <laughs> on and eat. And if it's cold outside, you know, there's two picnic benches, but really it's it's mostly a to-go joint. But I got to turn Kevin and Rob on to that, and uh, I've been going there since I was. Fuck, I don't know, man. Maybe fourteen. It's been a long time since I've been going to Susie's. And every time I get down to the city, I, I try to try to stop there for some food. It was good, and and I like that you said that they have a wide variety of food because one of my thoughts was they have no business having such a large menu. Like, just you know, focus down. Like most places, it's like we'll do burgers and dogs and like Italian beef and stuff like that, and that's it. But this place was like. I don't know any goddamn sandwich you could think about. They they were making it like Philly cheesesteaks and some sort of weird chicken sandwich. Yep, yep. confused chicken. Confused I believe that's chicken, what Homer yeah. had. Yep. But the the best part of that place is that um, so they have a menu that's got your regular standard old school menu. There are those little those little like black letters that have like the pins on the back, you know, and it kind of goes across and you put out what it is and, and the price. But then there are a variety of like pieces of construction paper like cut into weird shapes, just like <laughs> taped up places that say things like. Like, you know, I don't know, like tuna taco. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Weird, like specials, yeah. yeah. So uh, a lot of fun. Then we get to stop and have coffee in a place we won't name in case the terrorists are listening. But I got to tell you, man, and I, I know this is stereotyping, but you walk into a little coffee shop and there are three men hunched over a laptop <laughs> in the corner, like at this little ass table. And they all like look up at you when you walk in. Like kind of do the little stare down thing to see if you're any kind of threat and then go back to whatever they're doing. I don't know. They might have been international businessmen for all I know. I got money on they were Uber drivers. Or Uber drivers. <laughs> I guess I don't know what an Uber driver looks like. Is is there a specific stereotype for Uber drivers that I'm not No, worried? everybody's an Uber driver. You're probably an Uber driver, just don't even know it. Um But I'll be goddamned if that wasn't some really good coffee. At the oh yeah! Listen, shop. terrorism. Terrorism mention. aside, yeah, the coffee was really great and the service was terrific. <laughs> that coffee was the bomb, Livius. Nice. 
very, very nice. So oh, I knew you'd like that. A little bit on our drive out <laughs> to Chicago. Um, our drive back was far less interesting. I think we're all kind of tired. It was kind of quiet the whole way. So um, <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to talk about the end of the next episode. But speaking of which, um, if you're listening on the day this is posted, the uh, day after today, which is tomorrow typically, um, you'll be able to hear a uh, reading from Ed Kurtz. Scott Phillips doing something he's never, ever done at Noir at the Bar before. Yeah, and may never do again. Yeah, you won't believe what Scott Phillips does in our next episode of Booked. <laughs> did, I, did I do that right? You did. That was click, right, that was like the equivalent of clickbait. I like that yep, a lot. Yep, absolutely. So, absolutely. Um, <laughs> won't believe what happens next. <laughs> All right, so until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. <laughs>